It's certainly a commonplace in anthropology to say that religion in most cases involves the belief in some sort of non-human invisible agency, be it divinity or different types of spiritual entities. As we know, this non-human agency is usually said to act on people, for example in the form of spirit possession. Now, my paper today is an attempt to explore ethnographically not just the cultural concepts and representations of spirits, but also how this spiritual agency is embodied and enacted by religious practitioners in a particular area of sub-Saharan Africa. I would like to suggest that this analytical focus allows us to gain important insights, or possibly important new insights, into, first, some aspects of the sociocultural reality of spirits, and second, the question of how different ideas of spiritual agency give rise to different religious geographies. To put it provocatively, my paper today is an ethnography of the Holy Spirit. I will look at the ways how the Holy Spirit manifests itself in the actions of Pentecostal charismatic Christians in Zambia, in doing so exhibiting non-human and quite miraculous ways of locating itself in space and moving through space. To clarify what I mean with the latter point, let me take, for example, a paradigmatic scene in Christianity that is reenacted by millions of religious <coughs> practitioners every year and is familiar to anthropologists conducting research on Christians <coughs> in all different parts of the world, namely baptism by, in, in the Holy Spirit by immersion in a river. <coughs> For members of Pentecostal charismatic churches in southern Zambia, which is the site of my field work, Preparations for this ritual include, among other things, prayers over the river by a church leader, summoning the Holy Spirit's presence through singing hymns, and submitting people to be baptized to a purification in the form of an exorcism of demons. In some churches, the latter means that the baptism candidate has to register his or her name with the church secretary and to line up on the riverbank with the first person in the row standing closest to the water line. Then, one after the other, candidates are splashed with what, as a result of the prayers and hymns, is considered to have turned into holy water. If the first person in the line shows signs of possession by demons, such as whimpering sounds, shaking body movements, or falling to the ground, the assistants to the church elders move him or her aside for treatment, thus making room for the next person in the line to step forward and undergo the exorcism. If a baptism candidate shows no signs of demonic possession, he or she is assisted to the middle of the river to be baptized by triple immersion. There are no several notable aspects about this ritual uh, which are relevant to my presentation. For one thing, in the course of the exorcism, the power of the Holy Spirit is transmitted by splashing holy water from a stream over the body of the baptism candidate. Yet since splashing water of a distance tends to be quite a messy affair, it's usually not only the first person in line who is sprayed with water, but also bystanders and some of the other baptism candidates. All the same, in all rituals of this type of witness over the years, the power of the Holy Spirit had an exorcistic effect exclusively on the first person in line of baptism candidates. Even if it turned out later that certain others who coincidentally came into body contact with holy water in this process, who were possessed by evil spirits, it did not make them fall to the ground or go into demonic convulsions. In other words, though the Holy Water is used in this context as a generalized medium for transmitting the power of the Holy Spirit, 
its spiritualizing uh, effects are selective in a systematic manner. In dealing with baptism candidates, the Holy Spirit handles one candidate at a time. Moreover, while the socio-spatial radius of those splashed and, as a consequence, affected by the holy water is not clear, the Holy Spirit is unambiguous regarding who its adversary is, the first person in the line. In sum, the Holy Spirit, in effect, follows the procedural and socio-spatial order as determined by the church secretary in preparation of the ritual, processing the people to be exercised according to the logic of a bureaucratized and individualized sequence sequencing in the spatial form of a line. On the other hand, what is noteworthy about this type of baptism ritual is that the Holy Spirit is here assumed, at least in principle, to remain immobile in a specific section of constantly running water. It is true that in southern Africa, most of these rituals are performed on the banks of small rivers rather than broad streams. Nonetheless, the church elders prayed over flowing waters, and none of the religious practitioners I talked to thought such prayers to have spiritualizing effects for the entirety of the stream from its head to its mouth. Instead, while access to the ritual site was restricted to the church elders, their assistants and baptism candidates, the religious significance attributed to these areas of spiritualized water did not pertain to the section of the river further up and downstream, where local residents continued performing the daily routines of drawing water, having a wash and doing the laundry, 20 meters, 20 meters <coughs> Thus, by remaining immobile in a sphere of mobility, the Holy Spirit turned secular space into sacred place. In this way, baptism by immersion in a river conveys powerful ideas about spiritual continuity in a changing world and serves as a counterintuitive reminder to practitioners of Christianity that divine transcendence miraculously makes it possible for believers to step into the same river twice, and not in a purely metaphorical manner of speaking. The ethnographic case above establishes the topic of this talk. Taking baptism and the Holy Spirit by immersion in a river as the example, the case speaks to the fact that Christians around the world conceptualize and experience the spirit entity not only as being endowed with extraordinary powers, but also as being characterized by superhuman ways of making use of and moving through space. In further pursuing this line of inquiry, my presentation today explores different types of mobility of the Holy Spirit in Zambia. Broadly speaking, this topic stands in the emerging tradition of anthropology that stresses not spatial fixity, stability, or bounded definitude, but instead fluidity, flux, movement, and mobility. For instance, when probing into the global movement of people, objects, representations, models, ideas, and images, Anthropologists have reconceptualized space, re-examined the role of technology and materiality in the constitution of sociocultural life, and discussed whether different types of material and non-material entities are characterized by different types of motility. However, Peter Wynne Kirby has critically reminded anthropologists that, I quote, while anthropology and other social sciences have long acknowledged the importance of addressing flux in sociocultural inquiry, attention to the ramifications of movement remains relatively loop-sided. Extensive work on migration, diaspora cultures, and on social movements provides important insights into the fluidity of people, cultures, and ideas. Nevertheless, a focus on certain emblematically transnational or global movements 
exposes neglect of other elements of mobility and flux worthy of anthropological investigation. It is in the spirit of this reminder and against the backdrop of the observation that there is, with a few exceptions, a notable lack of attempts to take seriously the cultural variability of amic understandings of movement, that my paper seeks to initiate a debate on how anthropology might benefit from rethinking motivity. This means that this is sort of one of the points I'm trying to make, starting by correlating the morphology of an entity with the properties of its movement. Sorry, I'm still sort of suffering from the, from the running. This is embarrassing. As I try to demonstrate in what follows, the entity examined today, the Holy Spirit in Chitanga Muya Usalala, comes in various sizes and shapes, sometimes concentrating its beingness in the most minuscule location, at other times expanding its perimeters over large spatial areas. I argue that if you stick to the common definition of movement as a perceptible change of an entity's position in space, then Muya Usalala's self-expansion and self-contraction should be considered as a specific type of movement. More precisely, it's not a conventional movement from A to B with the morphology of the moving entity remaining unaltered, but instead a pulsation from the micro-scale to the macro-scale, which is affected by an alteration of the gestalt of Muya Usalala. Taking together my exploration of ideas of spirit mobility in Zambia, thus requires to take account of the morphology of the Holy Spirit, which allows for certain types of mobility and prevents others, thus shaping the geography of Pentecostal, charisma, uh, Pentecostal charismatic Christianity by connecting and empowering religious practitioners with miraculous ways of moving. Before coming to a general description of Muya Osalala and examination of its various types of mobility, two remarks are in order. First, while the scope and relevance of the topic outlined above, at least to my understanding, would certainly lend itself to a comprehensive comparative project on the mobility of spirits in global Pentecostalism, in Christianity at large, or in other religious traditions, the purpose of my talk today is much more modest and consists in demonstrating what can be achieved analytically when we relate the gestalt of a spirit entity to the ways in which it moves. As already mentioned, the ethnographic example I'm using here is Southern Zambia, most particularly the Gwenda Way. The second remark concerns methodology. During my fieldwork, I encountered Muya Usalala on many occasions in various settings and in different ways. On the one hand, Muya Usalala is the Jitanga expression for what in English language versions of the Bible is termed the Holy Spirit. As such, Muya Usalala was and continues to be part of everyday conversations between members of Pentecostal charismatic churches as well as between these members of these church members and myself. On the other hand, since for most people in this area, Muya Usalala is not merely an artifact of cultural representation, but a spiritual agency of divine providence that has an existence as a matter of fact, this entity is not only talked about, but also assumed to make itself present in the world in at least two different ways. First, members of these churches presume that Muya Usalala sometimes speaks to human media such as prophets, diviners, and healers. Secondly, members of these churches agree that under specific circumstances, Muya Usulala can enter the body of selected individuals in order to either fight demonic spirits occupying the space 
or to empower these individuals to accomplish superhuman tasks such as divination or witchfinding. When in the remainder of this talk I look at the different types of mobility of Muya of Salala, I shall be combining my research data from these different sources. In other words, the following analysis is based on my interlocutor statements about Muya Usalala, as well as on my observations about how Muya Usalala became a visibly embodied part of their religious practice. In that sense, it's an ethnography of the Holy Spirit, of um, looking at the indications of the sea. The expression Muya Usalala was first introduced to the Batonga in Zambia by representatives of the primitive Methodist missionary society around of the around the turn of the 19th century. Nowadays, Muya Usalala is of particular relevance in what Harold Turner has called prophet healing churches. That is, African-initiated Pentecostal charismatic churches where the divination and healing of afflictions plays a central role with regard to doctrine, pastoral praxis, and the recruitment of members. In these churches, an attempt is made to employ the life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit using a phrase by Jean Komarov, a polyvalent matter of healing, the leaders of these churches engage in the treatment of bodily afflictions, socially or mentally odd behavior, and cases of sterility. Witchcraft is considered the main cause of human afflictions. Some of these churches accordingly offer protective measures against the activities of witches. The search for the cause of misfortune when an affliction is pursued by means of mediumistic divinations which require the prophet concerned to be inspired by Muya Usalala. The treatment, on the other hand, generally involves spiritualized praying with the laying of hands and the singing of spirit hymns. Some churches provide herbalist treatment that resemble the practice of traditional herbalists. In both cases, however, success in healing presupposes that the healer is associated with the Holy Spirit, which is conceptualized as the main antagonistic force of against witchcraft and demons. As a consequence, religious authority in these Pentecostal charismatic churches is linked to the idea that certain human beings have a privileged association to Muya, with Muya Uzalala, who assists them in acquiring divine knowledge. At the same time, however, in my area of research, the Holy Spirit is not part of an anonymously shared and timeless system of classification. Besides the common view that the Holy Spirit is basically of a good moral standing, its concrete characteristics and powers and the loki and foci of its manifestations are constantly being negotiated in different social constellations. Actually, sort of the kind of the initial moments of a spirit procession, for example, of, or, or cults of affliction, they're quite, they're, they're similarities between uh, how, how the, the Holy Spirit makes its, its appearance and other spirits, like Mashaba spirits, for example. So it's always constantly negotiated what kind of spirit that could be. So while much of my previous work has uh, dealt with um, the uncertainties of religious practitioners in authoritatively identifying the true Holy Spirit, the discussion in my paper today refers to situations in which a certain implicit agreement had been reached among participants that a given spiritual manifestation represents the Holy Spirit. In response, we will first sort of try to to, um, to give you an idea of, of the, the spatial movements and, and, and how the Holy Spirit locates itself by comparing the Holy Spirit with other spirit entities in this area. 
when seeking to identify the basic parameters of how Muyuzalala makes itself present in the world, a comparison between this specific spirit and non-Christian spirits in the area of my research is useful. This is because there's a crucial difference between these spirit entities as regards the questions of the question of storage. Whereas it's claimed that the physical keeping of non-Christian spirits is possible in a box, in, 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 in a horn of, of a goat, in other places, and in, in, in gourds, um, this possibility was rejected as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned. For example, in contrast to the discourse on Muya Salala, the view that non-Christian spirits dwell in an object is prevalent. Thus, some kind of magic items used in witchcraft, so like insane, one, one of them is called insane, which is a, a horn used by, by witches, are said to contain bad spirits. The witches are assumed to posit spirits in the objects, which would then, when, for example, located in the homestead of the victim, lead to illness or death. Moreover, many traditional herbalists, munganga, banganga, possess paraphernalia which they present as containers for their spiritual assistance. Such storing of spirits is common among traditional herbalists and is also pre presumed to be essential to the practices of witches. In the latter case, keeping bad spirits is thought to be of particular importance because free-ranging spirits might turn against their own master. In contrast to this, it was unthinkable to my interlocutors that anyone could succeed in keeping the Holy Spirit in some sort of material vessel. Instead, the Holy Spirit is conceived as an inevitably unbound and evanescent entity which human beings cannot control in its movements. Against this background, Muyo Sulala is presumed never to reside permanently at any particular material location, whether in the Bible or in any other object of Christian practice. In order the buildings of Pentecostal charismatic churches are often said to be infused with divine powers, this does not mean that the Holy Spirit lives there permanently. The unbound nature of the Holy Spirit also relates to its association with human beings. Muyozalala selects as human mediums itself. It approaches appropriate persons, remains attached to them, and occasionally enters their bodies, and it can leave them at any time. In general, interpretations differ concerning the actual relationship between the Holy Spirit and human bodies. But most of my interlocutors maintain that the body of an ordinary human person in its normal state resembles a tabula rasa. If one needs a proper Christian life, however, the Holy Spirit starts to be close to one's body and to surround it. By means of communal efforts like singing, spiritual hymns, Muya Usulala can be used to enter the body of the person concerned. Then spiritual activities, like the one I mentioned before, can be expected. Now let me come to the first type of movement of the Holy Spirit. I mean, besides the one I mentioned at the beginning with the uh, baptism and the rhythm. In many African-initiated churches in Africa, the Holy Spirit is thought to be associated with the wilderness, that is, with more or less remote non-social realms. Short periods of seclusion in the wilderness are thus an important element of religious practice. Senior church elders and prospective church leaders are expected to spend some time regularly in spatially and socially remote areas in order to strengthen or, if they are said to have become spiritually weak, to re-establish a privileged association with Muya Salala. In southern Zambia, when the elders of Pentecost and Charismatic Church return from the wilderness, which are usually hilltops in this escarpment between the Gwangu and the Central African Plateau, they are said to have become exceedingly powerful in spirituality. 
some of the interlocutors metaphorically compared the spiritualized state of those returning with a battery that had been charged during seclusion and was subsequently discharged through engagement in the spiritual activities of the community. Such activity, in turn, served for the spiritual empowerment of others, the healing, preaching, laying of hands, and praying. The religious experts bring the laity in close association with the Holy Spirit. In combination, these two processes, importing spiritual power from the outside to the social inside, and then interpersonally transmitting it to members to the lay of the laity, constitute what I in a previous publication have called the logistics of the spirit. It's like sort of transporting it uh, into sort of uh, people. Despite the, the image of a battery, however, instances of the bodily incorporation of Muya Usulala are rare. Spiritually, therefore, capability does not imply that the person concerned possesses the Holy Spirit in the sense of having it incorporated permanently. Rather, it represents the likelihood that Muya Usulala will use the particular individual as a channel for contacting others. The logistics of the spirit pertaining to the importation of spiritual power from the outside to the social inside, that does not mean transporting the Holy Spirit as an entity, but rather transporting the human child for it. At the same time, the interpersonal transmission of spiritual power to others is not only enacted during Sunday services and other Pentecostal charismatic practices, such as the baptism rituals discussed above, but also constitute a significant component of intercongregational visits by senior church elders. Broadly speaking, religious authority and the majority of the Pentecostal charismatic churches in the area of my research evolves in the form of an extended dispersion of charisma. Most church elders I have come to know over the years have brought about the association with Muya Usalala for an act of mediation involving someone who had previously achieved a reputation for spiritual capacity. In this way, authorization by the church elders is related to previous instances of spiritualization, that is to centers of origination where the particular dispersal of charisma is supposed to have started. I've argued elsewhere with regards to one of the churches with, with sort of in, 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 in the focus of my research interest, the Spirit Apostolic Church, SAC, that the attempts by senior leaders of this church to restore their authority in 1999 brought about a complex combination of bureaucratic and post-Pentecostal charismatic practices, which in turn was connected with the dispersal of religious charisma as described above. On the one hand, the local branches expected the visitations of senior leaders to provide, to provide a spiritualizing input. Repeated acts of mediation were deemed necessary for the junior church leaders to achieve a close association with the Holy Spirit. When a branch leader visited headquarters, however, he was not expected to be capable of providing such an input of spirituality. The organizational structure of the SAC thus embedded a unidirectional top-to-bottom flow of spirituality. On the other hand, this was paralleled by a bureaucratic institutionalization at Brown's level and a subsequent bottom-to-top flow of bureaucratic products. By granting certificates to the office holders the top echelons of the church tried to institutionalize their relationship with subordinates level of the hierarchy in a form that resembled legal contracts. This particular form of authority, officially allocated to the junior church leaders, 
influenced how relationships and communication subsequently evolved. When approaching senior church leaders, the branch leaders could either address them as mediums of the Holy Spirit, for example as prophets or healers, or in terms of their function as an office holder. The senior leaders, by contrast, addressed the junior leaders solely as office holders. Though several of them acted as prophets, the branch leaders, and healers in their local branches, the senior leaders never officially acknowledged these roles, but in contrast to the senior church leaders, therefore, the branch leaders were not assumed to be speaking from the position of prophets or healers, but only from their prescribed position as office holders. The office holders of the branch leaders were consequently obliged to communicate with headquarters mainly by means of formalized bureaucratic procedures, and this is a Pentecostal charismatic church. The secretaries of the branches had to record the preceding church services, and uh, there were also service reports and uh, sort of uh, attendance numbers, which all had to be sort of given to the headquarters in order to sort of legitimate their own to, to be accountable to them. So that each year these reports had to be handed over to the general secretary or the headquarters, who would then examine the activities of the congregations. Using such procedures, the branch leaders were made to account for their efforts in evangelizing and their supervision of their respective congregations' religious practices. The Sunday reports and the membership registers thus constituted examples of a bottom-to-top flow of bureaucratic products, whereas headquarters, apart from occasional letters, individual instances of distributing membership identity cards and sporadically issued agendas for church meetings, was very reluctant to deliver documents to the branches the local congregations were expected to report regularly to the main board in writing. Thus, in 1999, and this is just an example for, for, for these flows, the Spirit Apostolic Church was characterized by two prevailing flows in opposite directions of the institutional hierarchy, spirit from above and paper from below. This configuration shows, first, that the log logistics of the spirit is a socio-politically charged matter and secondly, that the attempts of religious practitioners to control and channel the movement and worldly presence of the Holy Spirit <coughs> form part of power struggles that enacted not solely in spiritual, but also in bureaucratic realms of life, or in a combination of both. Summing up this point, the type of spirit mobility discussed uh, so far depends on the physical movement by human beings, either the form of traveling from the outside to the social inside, and between the spatially distant congregations of a church, or in the form of ritual interactions involving interpersonal contacts between religious practitioners, laying off of hands, and so on. In other words, in this type of spirit mobility, the spatial radius of the Holy Spirit's motility is relative to the readiness of religious practitioners to seek spiritual power by setting themselves in motion or by allowing themselves to be affected by others who have moved previously. People, people's movement thus precedes and premises spiritual movement where humans have failed to go, the spirit does not go. The second type of mobility um, is what I would like to call self-multiplication. Mm. To probe into the second type of spirit mobility, let me briefly come back to the introductory section of my talk. When describing the exorcisms performed in preparation of baptism rituals, 
I remarked that the power of the Holy Spirit is transmitted through prayed upon holy water, which, as I pointed out, does not automatically affect anybody who comes into bodily contact with it, but always only the first person among those lined up at the riverbank. <coughs> During Sunday services, a different type of spirit mobility can be observed, whose logic is captured in the term self-multiplication. In the Pentecostal charismatic churches in the area of my research, church services continue for about two to four hours, usually involving different types of prayers, singing and dancing, a series of sermons, divinations and healing sessions, a collection, notifications by the church secretary, and sometimes short speeches by the laity in which they thank God. For churchgoers, attending their services promises to enhance their religious knowledge and to enable them to, fill, to fulfill their duties as Christians, as well as providing a certain degree of entertainment. An additional and all-important motivation, however, lies in the striving to achieve a direct experience of God in the form of muyo salada. Most activities during common religious practice can thus be described as an attempt to prepare oneself for personal contact with the Holy Spirit or as actually enabling such contact. With a view to the emergent quality of church services, it's interesting to analyze how contact between the Holy Spirit and churchgoers sets in and develops in the course of ritual interactions. In all the Pentecostal charismatic church services I attended, Muya Usulala made its initial appearance by inspiring one of the church elders while she was, or he was praying, singing, or dancing. What are commonly seen to be signs of a possession by Muya Usulala are a combination of different visible and audible symptoms of varying identity, uh, intensity, such as swaying body movements, absent-mindedness with half-closed eyes, flickering eyelids, speaking in tongues, sighing sounds, are probably gasping out the names of biblical figures and searching hand movements. But, of course, there's always an ambiguity about all these uh, symbolic uh, body expressions. In most cases, following this initial appearance of Muyo Salala, other church elders also exhibit such symptoms, occasionally giving rise to an atmosphere of collective effervescence, with impassionate dancing and a blaring cacophony of glossolalic voices filling the church building. It is at this point of the ritual interaction that Muyo Salala starts manifesting itself among members of the laity, a process that can be inferred only ex negativo when witnessing what are considered to be symptoms of a demonic possession that is triggered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. All in all, if these rituals are realized in a fallacious way, the Holy Spirit can thus be said to self-multiply in, in the course of the church service, starting out from one of the church elders, then bringing its influence to bear on some of the other's co-present elders, and eventually on selected members of the laity attending the service. In this process, Muya Uzalala manifests itself not in a contiguous spatial area, but in distributed form that is here and there throughout the ritual space, with the spaces in between remaining unaffected by its spiritual power. In contrast to what I discussed in relation to what I call the logistics of the spirit, I'm, not, I'm never quite sure if it's logistics or logistics, I hope I'm sort of making my point. Uh, Self multiplication thus refers to a type of spirit mobility in which the starting point and the end point of a movement by the spirit are not interconnected through spatial movements on the ground. In other words, while the logistics of the spirit examined above, 
require the physical and unintermitted transport of the human channel for this Holy Spirit from, say, point A to B, the type of spirit mobility discussed here means, in a manner of speaking, that Muya Uzala perceptively changes its position in space by making itself present at different locations at the same time. This is surely a miraculous way of moving, but also a familiar phenomenon in Pentecostal charismatic churches, who members whose members do not inhabit a demarcated and contiguous area, but are spatially dispersed throughout different regions, with people of other religious faith inhabiting the areas in between. It is also a type of spirit mobility that helps us understand why and in what ways Pentecostal charismatic churches often have and have had subversive effects on the geographies of other religious traditions, non-Pentecostal Christianity included. Let me come to the last type of spirit mobility I'm aiming to discuss today, which I call spiritual scaling. Coming to the third type of spirit mobility, some aspects of the gestalt of the Holy Spirit as an active area of my research need to be explored first. Let me first start with a comparison with the other type of mobilities I've, I've explored because each of them is sort of associated with a different type of morphology of the Holy Spirit. In the first type, the logistics of the Spirit, where the Spirit's movement are dependent on and relative to human movements, the size and shape of the Holy Spirit principally corresponds to the spatial dimensions of the human beings it uses as its physical channels. In other words, when being imported from the outside to the social inside, the spirit entity called Muya Usulala is actually small and bounded enough to join a church leader on the back of a lorry when the latter returns to his village. And it's also handy enough to be transmitted by the laying of hands by sprinkling holy water and baptism candles. It has a certain bound form in the logistics of the spirit. Compare this to the morphology of the Holy Spirit that is characteristic for the second type of spirit mobility, self-multiplication. In this type of mobility, Muya Usalala also has a bounded shape, but differs from each of its human channels in that it's not one but many, or rather that its beingness is one but many at the same time, that it would occasionally multiply itself from being one to being many, or vice versa, reduce itself from being many to being one. I've suggested above that this self-multiplication is a form of mobility, because it involves changes in the Holy Spirit's position in space. However, changing its position this way does not mean that Muya Usalala moves through or fills the space in between the locations of where it makes itself present. Instead, it travels by coming out of nowhere, and it does so at different places at the same time. Moreover, while synchronous manifestations of the Holy Spirit at different places are believed to be essentially self-identical, that is, to pertain to one and the same spiritual entity, the process of self-multiplication involves a change in the spirit's morphology from a single manifestation of a bounded entity to a spatially dispersed set of self-identical bounded manifestations of this same spiritual entity. The existence of these different morphologies of the Holy uh, Spirit points to what might be called the problem of methodological individualism and the, stu and the anthropologic study of the Holy Spirit or of spirit entities in general, which actually sort of includes much of my previous work as well. What I want to say to this is neither that anthropologists have unduly concentrated on single individual spirits, nor that I would want to persuade them to pursue analysis with a few to collectivities of spirit. I have the impression, however, 
that not enough attention has been paid to the fact that spirits and human beings differ, differ not only in their forms of agency, but also in their morphology, and most importantly from argument in the present paper, in their scale. As has hopefully become clear, Muya Uzalala is conceived of and experienced by members of Pentecostal charismatic churches and the Arabic Church, is a peculiar entity that is associated with several conceptual paradoxes. Concerning its essence of being, Muya Uzalala is assumed to be identical with and yet also different from God, Lesa. As regards to size, Muya Uzalala is considered to be both a local and a superlocal force. At the same time, while manifestations of Muya Uzalala are said to be unique and singular events, it is also considered a truism that it can simultaneously manifest itself at different places at once. In addition, as discussed above, Muya Uzalala is conceptualized both as a spatially extensive entity that is bound to place and filling space, and on other occasions as an unbounded entity that has the capacity to self-multiply and manifest itself at different places without occupying or traveling through the space between these points. Awareness of this paradoxical nature of Muya Uzalala can help us avoid the traps of methodological individualism in the study of spiritual inter-entities, where the idea of ghosts, that is, human-like spiritual individuals endowed with extraordinary skills and faculties, often serves as a blueprint for the analysis of all different types and classes of spiritual entities. The third type of spiritual mobility examined here, spiritual scaling, is a good example of why such blueprints are problematic when we try to grasp what characterizes the motility of the Holy Spirit. I've shown above, or tried to show above, that Muya Uzalala has the capacity for self-multiplication, which takes place during church services. However, collective efforts by churchgoers can also lead to a situation in which the Holy Spirit is felt to be present in such an extraordinary intensity that everyone entering the ritual scene is automatically affected by its power. On such occasions, similar to what I described above, Muya Uzalana makes its initial appearance by inspiring one of the church elders, while she's praying, singing, or dancing. However, in contrast to spirit mobility by self-multiplication, this initial inspiration does not only affect only selected individuals positioned in a spatial distance from each other, but leads to a self-expansion of the Holy Spirit so that its beingness pervades the entirety of the ritual space and sometimes even stretches beyond. On the other hand, in case the church goes collective efforts to appease the Holy Spirit lose strength, Muyo Solala decreases its size by self-contraction and sometimes even retracts in its entirety from the ritual scene. Taken together while involving a perceptible change of position space, so that might definition of movement, this type of spirit mobility does not take the form of a movement from A to B. Instead, it represents a spatial pulsation between microscale and macroscale that is accomplished by self-induced upscaling and downscaling of the gestalt of the Holy Spirit and results in a spiritual permeation of space on different local, regional, trans-regional scales. Some words in conclusion. In terms of the concepts used, the most radical step undertaken in my presentation today probably consists in taking seriously the conventional definition of movement as a perceptible change of an entity's position in space. 
as if tried to show, if applied to the Holy Spirit as conceived of and especially embodied and acted and experienced by members of Pentecostal charismatic churches in Zambia, this concept can bring about surprising insights into different types of spirit mobility. I've identified three different types of spirit mobility. Logistics of the spirit, self-multiplication, and spiritual scaling. Each of which is implicit in specific aspects of Pentecostal charismatic practice and associated with distinct spatialized morphologies of the Holy Spirit. I don't know, so hopefully these considerations can be seen or will lead to an initial step in what might lead to a rewriting of geographies and Pentecostal charismatic Christianity. This initial step might entail first, or should entail first, conceptualizing the Holy Spirit not just an object of knowledge or representation, but as an agency of divine ontology in its own right, as enacted by people we sort of encounter during our fieldwork. Secondly, carefully avoiding the problem of methodologic individualism, the study of spiritual entities, by taking account of the idea that spiritual entities come in different sizes and shapes, they have different morphologies. And thirdly, taking seriously the fieldwork observation that, for the Holy Spirit, mobility can be enacted not only by traveling, but also through purposely changing its own morphology. Rewriting Pentecostal charismatic geographies along these lines promises to shed new light on the dialectics of agents and patience, <coughs> identity formation and Christian religions of the spirit, and the dynamics of socio-spiritual inclusion and exclusion. As regards the latter point, and this is my last point I'm trying to make today, the types of spirit mobility discussed above differ in their spatial form. The logistics of the spirit takes the form of a network. The Holy Spirit's self-multiplication produces a scattering. And spiritual scaling is an act in the form of an oscillating permeation of space. In this way, these types of spirit mobility stand for different strategies in constituting and realizing socio-spiritual communities with logistics of the spirit presupposing the interpersonal transmission of the Holy Spirit, self-multiplication allowing for the emergence of semi-autonomous centers of spiritualization, and spiritual scaling incorporating virtually anything within its bound. Against this backdrop, laying emphasis on one of them at the exclusion of others can serve as a means to establish Pentecostal charismatic authority or to delegitimize the claims to spiritual authority by others. But of course, you always need to bear in mind that ambitions by human beings to keep the Holy Spirit in check have their limits and the quintessential evanescence of this spiritual entity, at least in as that's what people tell me, which as practitioners of Pentecostal charismatic Christianity never tire of emphasizing, would never allow its own agency to be entirely contained by human agency. Given this unboundedness of the Holy Spirit, should we really wonder about the extraordinary forms of mobility it exhibits? After all, the social life of spirits is but a life of miracles. Thank you very much. <laughs>